Right, well, a, a very careful check that we haven't got the voice activation system on. No. After last week, that would be disastrous if that happened a second time, wouldn't it? Um, let's just uh, pray before we start. Father, we thank you for your word. Because, Lord, it's the word of eternal life. And it's our food and it's our drink. And, Father, it's as we take in your word. And it's as your Holy Spirit of truth gives us understanding that we're able to grow in you. Oh, Father, we do pray that you'll speak to us tonight. Lord, grant me clarity. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we'll turn to um, 1 Kings and chapter 19. 1 Kings and uh, chapter 19. And uh, we're, we're going to start with verse 19. Um, now, we're, we're going to be doing a bit of a a meander tonight. Uh, we're going to actually be doing quite a bit of reading because we're going to tie up loose ends really. Uh, next, the next talk will be the last one and uh, we'll, we'll pick that up over in 2 Kings and chapter 2 but what we're going to be doing tonight is um, kind of covering the history that takes place between Elijah kind of bowing out at the end of 1 Kings and uh, then him coming back in on the scene in Two Kings. So we're going to really tonight be doing a bit about Elijah, but covering the history um, that happened during his kind of going off the scene and then coming back on the scene, as it were. Um, but last time we, we got up to verse 18, and uh, you know Elijah now having recovered from his suicidal condition. And uh, so, so we'll just pick up, uh, initially from 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 19 and uh, this is after the Lord has got Elijah back on on form and uh, sort of like sends him off with various bits and pieces to do and you'll remember the one of the uh, things that uh, the Lord had, had told him to do was to go and anoint Elisha who was going to replace Elijah when Elijah eventually went to heaven so um let's, let's start from verse 19 so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was ploughing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he was the twelfth. Uh, sorry, and he was with the twelfth. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, just, just to clarify here, we're not saying Elisha was an ox. Um, I misread that. Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen and slew them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered to him. Let's take each of those verses at the time. Now, verse 19. Um, <coughs> Elijah, he, the fact that, you know, he goes to find Elisha, and there, you know, there's Elisha ploughing, and uh, Elijah casts his mantle on him. Now, his mantle was a cloak, 
and uh, next week we're going to see an awful lot more about this mantle that um, Elijah had. But anyway, he throws it on Elisha, and what that kind of what that symbolised uh, was the fact that Elisha had been chosen by God to step into Elijah's shoes once Elijah was actually taken back to heaven. So Elijah casts his cloak on Elisha, and uh, that kind of symbolize the prophetic calling that God is now giving to Elisha. But notice that Elijah went after Elisha, alright? Um, and that's important. God's call and God's guidance always comes after us. You see what I mean? Don't have to go looking for it. And uh, notice Elisha is ploughing. He's just carrying on his normal day-to-day -day routine and God's call comes to him. And of course what we see there is that the initiative is always with the Lord. And uh, when we sort of, you know, did bits and pieces about guidance in earlier talks here, we noticed that the word of the Lord always came to Elijah. You see what I mean? Not belting around all over the place trying to find God's guidance, but we can be absolutely assured the principle is this. If we carry on faithfully in the last situation that God led us into, if we just carry on with that faithfully, then any change needed via God's guidance will become clear. It will come to us. And so Elisha is just ploughing day-to-day -day life. He knows the Lord, obviously, but he doesn't know that he is going to replace Elijah as a prophet to Israel. And he's just carrying on his normal day-to-day -day routine, and suddenly there's Elijah throwing his cloak on him. And a uh, bit odd here in verse 20, uh, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Now then, what's happening here? Elisha, realising that God's call is upon him, and that in order to answer that call, he would have to follow Elijah, and he'd be like an apprentice. He was going to learn the tricks of the prophetic trade as it were, from Elijah. And so Elisha says, okay, I'm just going to pop home, say goodbye to mum and dad and everything, and then I'll be coming after you. No problem. You got it. And Elijah responds to him, what have I got to do with you? Go away. Now that seems a bit odd, doesn't it? But of course, what's happening here is that Elijah is making absolutely sure that Elisha really thinks about this and makes a free will choice rather than merely being coerced into it. Do you see what I mean? Although Elijah is calling Elisha into prophetic service, as it were, nevertheless, Elijah does it in such a way that Elisha is not just making an on-the-spur-of-the-moment decision. Because, of course, it was going to change his whole life. And it's tremendously important. Elijah is not coercing him. You know, he's not giving him sort of how fantastic and what a privilege it is, or stuff like that. He rather tries to put him off. And, of course, we've seen this in Jesus. Uh, you know, as Jesus preached to people, he'd rather try and put them off. Obviously, he wanted everyone to respond to God's call in their lives. But, to respond to God's call in your life, whether it's as an unbeliever getting saved, or whether it's a disciple entering into some specific ministry or calling from God, there is going to be a price to pay. If there wasn't a price to pay, it wouldn't be a way worth going. Because Jesus went the way of suffering. And so, therefore, it's important that people, even when they're responding to God's call, 
make a decision that is based on clear thinking and an act of the will rather than coercion or any kind of romantic ideas about what ministry, inverted commas, might mean. And, uh, you know, God has made us in his likeness. And God has free will, and so do we. And uh, to violate people's free will is to violate the image of God in them. And if you violate the image of God in a human being, you're violating God's image itself. And it's a kind of a blasphemy thing to do. Satan wants man's free will impugned, uh, assaulted at any point that he can get it. To dominate or manipulate is always from the evil one. And so Elijah simply lays on Elisha the call of God but then make sure that he doesn't make up his mind too quickly. You see, there's just that element of putting him off. But what Elijah doesn't do is, is sweep Elisha along in some great romantic flurry or something like that. Elijah is very down to earth about it and he's saying, right, I'm bringing the call of God to you, Elisha. There's no need to doubt that. That's genuine. But don't say that you're going to accept it too soon. Don't let it be a knee-jerk reaction. Make sure it's something that you've really thought about, because it's going to cost you. Oh boy, is it going to cost you. And Elijah knew all about serving God costing him something, and he knew the kind of thing that Elisha would be in for as well. So that's, that's that rather why, you know, Elijah said, you know, what have you got to me? You know, sort of like, go away, as it were. And then verse 21, and he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and slew them, blah, blah, blah. Basically here, Elisha, he says his goodbyes, and off he goes following Elijah. And of course, here, in order to do it, Elisha is leaving everything. He is leaving his family, he is leaving his employment, as it were. Um, you know, because now he has to be free to travel, etc, etc. And so, as far as Elisha is concerned, this call of God on his life is going to cost him absolutely everything. Now keep your fingers in one king, but, but, but just go over to Luke. Let's read some words of Jesus, just to see how, how consistent this is with the way that the law works. And Luke chapter 14, and uh, we'll read from verse 25. And this is Jesus speaking. Uh, it says, Now great multitudes accompanied him and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, it's important, there's a sort of idiom there. Um, the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking knew exactly what he meant. Uh, Jesus was not saying that to be a disciple you've got to literally have hatred in your heart for your family, anything like that at all. It was a Jewish way of saying that if there was a priority, if there was the great love of your life, then after that everything is a hatred by comparison. You see what I mean? Um, you know, they'd have said, like, in order to be a good husband, you've got to love your wife. And in the context of being a husband, you love your wife, but hate everyone else. It's a way, not of talking about literal hate, you know, sort of hatred, but emphasising how great the love is. And of course, what Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to follow me, then I am your first love. I'm the priority of your life. I come first. 
above everything, including family. And, uh, you know, and then Jesus said, and even hate his own life. So the point is that what Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, then I, as the Lord and Saviour of mankind, come before you. You see what I mean? You've got to love, we've got to love Jesus more than we love ourselves. That's what that means. And he goes on to say, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Uh, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's finished, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man begin to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and take counsel whether he's able, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an embassy and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And notice the all. Now, it doesn't mean you've literally got to give everything up in the sense that, you know, if you're a husband, you have to leave your wife and children. Anything like that at all. But what Jesus is saying, that everything is surrendered to him. Everything of our lives, everything about our lives is surrendered to Jesus for retention or disposal as he sees fit. And so, therefore, there's that real counting the cost. And, um, you know, and that was why Elijah gave Elisha a way out, as it were. You know, don't jump too quickly. But Elisha, he thinks it through, he knows it's right. And therefore, in order uh, for him to follow the Lord, he has to literally, with hardly any warning at all, walk away from his life as he had known it. So, therefore, we see the call of Elisha. Now, we're going to be back to that. Um, next time. Um, now, what we're going to deal with now is sort of like the ensuing chapters which don't so much home in on the ministry of Elijah, although he gets a mention here and there, but they're the background history that happens uh, from this point until Elijah and Elisha come back on the scene again um, in, in, in two kings. So, what we're going to do, alright, um, I've actually we're going to be doing quite a lot of reading and, um, tonight, but let's, let's start off with chapter 20. And I'm going to kind of just meander our way through this, all right. Um, now then, let's, let's start reading from chapter 20. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it, Samaria being part of Israel. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, the king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your fairest wives and children also are mine. So he's getting his terms. You know, these invading armies and saying, This is what we want, Ahab, or there's going to be trouble, all right? And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and, and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and lay hands on whatever pleases them, and take it away. Then the king of Israel, Ahab, called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now, see how this man is seeking trouble. 
For he sent to me for my wives and my children, and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not heed or consent. So he sent to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you first demanded of your servants I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad said to him, sent to him and said the gods do so to me and more also if the dust of samaria shall suffice for handfuls of all the people who follow me and the king of israel answered tell him let not him that girds on his armor boast himself as he that puts it off when ben hadad heard it as he was drinking with the kings in the booths he said to his men take your positions and they did against the city now what's happening here is that ben hadad all right assyrian he's got all his armies and a few surrounding nations there so right let's go and beat up israel so they send word and uh, they say right i have you know send out all that you've got we want your silver your gold and we want your fairest wives and ahab says yeah all right no problem now obviously what would ahab have done well, he would have sent out a bit of his silver, a bit of his gold, and probably, you know, a handful of the wives he'd gone off recently, you know, the ones he'd last had a row with. Because he had loads of wives. I mean, Jezebel was his main one, but he had loads of wives. And, uh, you know, so he says, okay, fair enough. And uh, so then the Syrians say, all right, uh, now we're going to actually come into Israel and we're going to check. We're going to come in and take it. You see, so, you know, therefore I have things, oh, crikey, no, that's no good. We're going to have to go to war, aren't we? He was trying to bluff them. It didn't work, all right. So then, verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall start the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Now, here is one of the 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. He is another prophet. We're not told his name, but here he comes on the scene. And uh, remember, rotten though Ahab is, he is still the king of God's chosen people, whom God protects, you see. So what God is saying, right, the victory is going to be yours, Ahab. I'm going to fight for you. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. Now, this is bad tactics, isn't it, by any means? I mean, you know, you've kind of declared war on someone, and, uh, you know, sort of like having declared war, you then have a drinking binge with all your captains. So they're, they're stone drunk, you know, I mean, they're, they're plastered. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army which followed them, and each killed his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and captured the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, so they were stronger than we, but this time let us fight against them in the plain, and we shall be stronger than they. And do this, 
remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their places and muster an army like the army that you have lost horse for horse chariot for charity chariot then we will fight against them in the plain and surely we shall be stronger than they and so he hearkened to their voice and did so so what's happening now the Syrians are deciding okay we lost that but we were fighting in the hills and of course they they believed that loads of gods didn't they and they said well obviously the god of israel this jehovah is a god of the hill isn't he that's why we lost we'll do it on the plain next time <laughs> you know because they haven't got a god of the plains their god must only be of the hills so thought this time right it won't be in the hills it'll be in the plains and we'll win so in the spring ben hadad mustered the syrians and went up to aphek to fight israel and the people of israel were mustered and provisioned and went against them the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country, so desperately outnumbered here. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the Lord has decided, right, I'm going to give Ahab another victory here, because the Syrians have said, I'm just the God of the hills. I'll show him, I'm the God of everywhere, you see. So God decides here to give Ahab the victory, not for you know, the benefit of Israel primarily, but purely for his own nature, to demonstrate to Syria that he is the God of the plains and the hills and absolutely everything. Um, and they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel smote of the Syrians a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon twenty-seven thousand men that were left. So they fled into Aphek, a walled city. They just got in there nice and safe. And the, wolves, you know, the wall caves in on them. So, I mean, you know, th this is what happens when, when God fights for you. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. Now remember uh, that Ahab knew full well from the Old Testament scriptures that he had, the Pentateuch, you know, Genesis, Exodus, etc., etc., that as far as the law was concerned, all right, in situations like this, the leaders of the invading armies had to be put to death. You took no prisoners. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Pray let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. This is, this is Ahab. He's being Mr. Nice Guy now, isn't he? Um, now the men were watching for an omen and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came forth to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. So basically what's happening here is that Ahab spares his life because he proposes a deal. But this deal is not for Israel, this is purely for Ahab. You know, and so Ahab says, yeah, right, okay, no problem. He should have put the king to death, all right? And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, I pray. Now, you know, a little bit here, don't mess with prophets. <laughs> we really are going to see this tonight. Now, obviously, we're talking about Old Testament prophets here. This doesn't apply to New Testament prophets. But, uh, you know, sort of like you're messed with Old Testament prophets at your own peril. Um, 
And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow, his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, I pray. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion met him and killed him. I mean, this, this, this bloke had received a command from a pro prophet in the name of the Lord. It was a direct commandment from God, and he disobeyed it. He wouldn't do it. All right? And uh, so he got it, didn't he? Then he found another man and says, Strike me, I pray. And the man struck him, smiting and wounding him. Wise man. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, poor prophet. But there's a reason for this. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, I mean, here you've got acting out. Prophets would often act something out in order to get their message across. <coughs> as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Keep this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. At and as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he made haste to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Now, what the prophet has done here, what he's acting out, he's like pretending, as it were, to be a soldier who was taking care of a POW. Now, you know, often, if your prisoner escaped, you're either put to death or, uh, you know, sort of like if, the, if, if your superior officer was dishonest, you could buy your way out of it. You know, you could buy your life for a talent of silver or something and redeem yourself. And, uh, you know, so what the prophet is doing, he's presenting himself to Ahab as a soldier who has not obeyed orders. He has failed to keep the orders he was given. And uh, Ahab has said, well, the judgment is as you say, you know, no, he's coming to me. You did the wrong, you pay the price for it. No sympathy from me. And then this prophet rips off, you know, da -dun -da -dun, da -da 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 -da, rips off the bandage, and there he is, sort of prophet, as it were, prophet man. Um, and he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, I Ben Hadad, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house resentful and sullen, and came to Samaria. So what's happened here is that now the sin unto death is pronounced upon Ahab. You know, sort of like God now indicates to Ahab, right, you've had your chips. It's only a matter of time, and you're going to die. It's as simple as that. Very much here, sort of rather like when uh, Saul, you know, do you remember King Saul, uh, whom David took over from? Well, King Saul, incapable of obeying the Lord's orders, always had a better way of doing it, you know, and of course, eventually, eventually, the sin unto death was proclaimed against him as well. So then, victory in the battles, but judgment is proclaimed now, quite specifically, against Ahab, you know, sort of, and his household, etc., etc. Right, now, we'll read through verse 21, and uh, uh, chapter 21, and uh, Elijah is here going to make one of his appearances. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value, its value in money. A fair enough offer, 
Ahab is making a very fair offer here. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I shall give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab uh, and Naboth had said, No way, it's been in my family for years. And Naboth had every right to say, I don't want to sell it. But Naboth, uh, sorry, and Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen. This guy sulked a lot, and sulking is a sure sign of not being in fellowship, believe me. Bec uh, he, he went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I'll not give you the inheritance of my father. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he's sulking. But, but, and this but is a something, but... Jezebel, his wife, came to him. And you can sense that now there's going to be trouble, can't you? And she said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth of Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I'll not give you my vineyard. You know, he's probably crying now. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? He said, Were you the king or not, you wimp? You know, typical, you know. Um, Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, notice, Ahab is going to go with his wife here, but he didn't think of it. Evil though he is, he is also a man under the thumb of his wife, which is always a very dangerous situation to be in. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who dwelt with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, set Naboth on high among the people, and set two base fellows opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the nobles, who dwelt in the city, did as Jezebel has sent word to them. As it was written in the letters which she has sent to them, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth on high among the people, and two base fellows came in and sat opposite him, and the base fellows brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he's dead. Now can you see the corruption here? If you've got a corrupt king, his officials are going to be corrupt. And if the king's officials are going to be corrupt, then as it were, the local council is going to be corrupt. Can you see the point? The, the higher at the top you've got corrupt leadership, the further down the hierarchy that corruption is going to go. It stinks. It stinks. All Jezebel had to do as the king's wife was to get the elders of a city to stitch him up. And they did quite happily. They murdered him. It's as simple as that. That is corrupt leadership. And God hates it. No wonder it says in Proverbs that when there's an evil king, the people groan. Because if you have evil leadership, wrong leadership, it's the people who suffer. But the Bible says that if you've got righteous leadership, you know, with justice and that, then the people are glad. And of course they are. Can you imagine, he and Naboth, he gets up one morning and he's a dead man, just because the king wanted something he had. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for the money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard, Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Now then, we've got to ask ourselves, when stuff like this goes on, um, 
is the Lord hearing? Does he do anything about it? Well, the answer is yes. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? You see, you know. But can you see the point here? Part of the role of any prophetic stance, and this would include leadership in the church today, and our own ministry to each other, is that the kingdom of God must be policed. Elijah was a policeman. He was God's policeman. And Ahab had committed a crime. So in, Elijah goes to correct him, to make him know, you know, look, you're going to suffer for this. Um, Ahab, uh, he answered, I have found you because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you. I will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because of the... Uh, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord has said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the bowels of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the air shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He did very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So what's happening here? God says, right, now Ahab, already the pronouncement of death is against you, but now I am going to wipe out your family. You are going to have no descendants. And that, for an Israelite family, was the final judgment. Can you see what I mean? Because it was important to the Jews, they lived on in their family name. Well, here, the pronouncement is against, you know, Ahab is going to be so dealt with that in a few years' time, no one is going to be related to him, because they're all going to be killed. And when Ahab heard these words, he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days I will bring evil upon his house. So what God is saying now is that there was just a smidgen of repentance here from Ahab. A smidgen. Nothing significant, but a smidgen. And of course the point is, God is a God of grace. Of grace. And what happens now um, is that God says, right, the complete destruction of your family line will now happen after you're dead. You won't see it. So the judgment is still going to happen, but God has said, because of the fact that you've said a little bit of a sorry, all right, it's going to happen after you've dead. So you won't actually live to see it. Okay. Right, now then, we proceed to chapter 22, and um, I think we'll have to try and um, start skipping through rather than reading the whole lot. Um, now, this is three years later, all right? Syria and Israel, for the next three years, there's peace. Um, 
But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hands of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And uh, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Now, remember, Ahab is the king of um, Israel, and, and, and Israel is split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. So it was both Israel, but it was after the country split into two. And Jehoshaphat, who you can read a lot about in other places in the Bible, he was a good king. Jehoshaphat was a believer. He was faithful to the Lord. And what's happened, he's come to visit Ahab, which was probably unwise. Uh, but he's come to visit Ahab. And Ahab brings up the fact that Ramoth Gilead had been taken by the Syrians years before and they'd never got it back. And Ahab saying, look, you know, we'll go down and get it. Are you with me? And Jehoshaphat said, yeah, sounds good to me. I'm with you. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Now, can you see... Jehoshaphat is a good king. He's a believer. He says it's a great idea. Let's see what the Lord says about it. Now, we haven't read Ahab saying anything like that, have we? But Jehoshaphat, he did. Uh, then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. And, uh, you know, so what he does now, he gets all his prophets together, all right, and he says, right, we need God's word here. Do we go up against Ramoth Gilead, all right? And uh, all the prophets are saying, yeah, you, you go up there, you go up there. But Jehoshaphat, uh, a cautious man, and also by now a little bit suspicious probably of Ahab, he's getting to know him, he says, um, he says, is there not here another prophet of the Lord whom we may inquire? You know, I, I, Jehoshaphat, is, he's sussing out that something's very wrong with this Ahab. Now look what um, Ahab says. And the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, There is one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. So there's this other prophet called Micaiah, and Joshua, uh, Ahab hates him, because every prophecy that Micaiah brings is not what Ahab wants to hear. And, uh, and Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. That's a rebuke. You mustn't say things like that. That's wrong. That's wrong. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying. And Zedekiah, the son of Shiana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with all these you shall push Syria until it's destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph the Lord will give it into the hand of the Lord. Now then, the thing is, this Micaiah lives in prison. <laughs> Alright, because Ahab has long since locked him up. But uh, at Jehoshaphat's insistent, Micaiah is, is then brought out. And, uh, and the messengers who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favourable to the king. See, that's handy having prophets in your pocket like Ahab did. Let your word be like one of them and speak favourably. So here's a prophet being asked to come before the king to prophesy in the name of the Lord, to bring God's word, and he's told, but you make sure it's what the king wants to hear. So a lot of that goes on today amongst Christians, you know, saying what is wanted to be heard. Never mind what God's will is, but you just say what is wanting to actually be heard. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. That's faithfulness. And for us, we have the word of God. And no matter what people think, no matter what the price is, we speak the word of God. 
we don't adjust it, we don't turn, tone it down, we simply present the word of God as written. When he had come to the king, the king said, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And Micaiah answered him, go up and triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And old boy, has Micaiah got a grin on his face when he says this. But the king said to him, how many times shall I adjure you that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Now this is incredible. Ahab knows that Micaiah speaks the word of the Lord. He knows that. And yet he hates Micaiah because he doesn't like what Micaiah says. So Micaiah, bringing in, I suppose here, the prophetic ministry of sarcasm and, you know, sort of like, you know, being a bit, you know, whatever, says, oh no, you go up, the Lord's with you. And Ahab says, don't lie to me. <laughs> and when he says, how many times must I adjure you? This is obviously Micaiah's, you know, sort of like, he's got a habit of doing this. You know, this kind of sarcasm, you know, parodying it. And he says, you know, Ahab says, look, I've, I've told you, you must tell me the, t you know, the truth. And so Micaiah says, oh, all right then. I saw all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, that he, uh, concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him, on the right hand and on the left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And what you get now is a spirit presents itself to God and says, I will go as a lying spirit into the mouth of the prophets of Ahab. You see, because God's going to entice him into judgment, the sin unto death, you see. And uh, verse 23, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has spoken evil concerning you. Now, in verse 24, this is amazing. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chinana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me? to speak to you now this is here is a prophet supposed prophet of the Lord a minister of God and he now because Micaiah is disagreeing with him and they all knew that Micaiah was the one speaking the truth alright this minister of the Lord this prophet of Israel goes over to Micaiah and in sheer anger and jealousy punches him it's absolutely incredible and Micaiah said Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah, take him back to Amon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison, feed him with scant fare of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, then the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. Now can you see, talk about the word of God meeting up with hatred in response to it. Here he's got the king locking him up again, so he's going to spend you know, the foreseeable future in jail. But these are the you know, leaders of God's people, you know, prophets and priests. They, they so hate being disagreed with. You know, you know, kind of like you know, Micaiah, they're jealous of him. And they punch him. Uh, can you see the hatred here? It's absolutely phenomenal. And, uh, and basically, to go through the rest of the story, uh, you know, what happens basically is that Israel are defeated in this battle. And also, Ahab is killed. And so the sin unto death actually occurs um, 
in this kind of chapter. So, um, and it says, so the king died, this is 37, and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, because he was killed in a chariot by a bow, an arrow, and, and all the blood's in the bottom, and so the dogs lick the blood. And, um, you know, so that's the end of Ahab, verse 41. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, the king of Israel. Jehoshaphat, you know, that's uh, information about um, Jehoshaphat there. And, um, in verse 47, there was no king in Edom, a deputy was king, Jehoshaphat, no that's not the bit I want, go down into verse 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now here, we've got um, Ahaziah. Ahab has been killed, Ahaziah, his son, now takes over. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Now, just hold that in contrast to what happened on Mount Carmel. Within three years, it was all gone. And the top leadership never reformed. See how tragic? That was possibly, Elijah very possibly felt that this is what was going to happen. And that might have been one of the reasons he got so depressed three years earlier. Anyway, now we move into uh, two kings. And, uh, well, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. He's fallen through the ceiling. <laughs> Some people. Um, and he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, now listen to this, go, inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Baalzebub, that was one of the names for Baal. Baalzebub, another name for the devil. But the angel of the Lord, so he's going to inquire of a satanic ritual whether he's going to get well again. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone, but you shall surely die. Now, what happens is, um, you know, uh, Ahaziah gets the message, and what happens is that um, he sends a captain with 50 men to find Elijah. And uh, they go up to Elijah, they find Elijah, and they order him to come with them. They order him. You know, they, they, you know, O man of God, the king says, come down. Now, what happens is, the first group go out, and Elijah calls fire down from heaven, and they're all killed. So Ahaziah hears about it. He then sends out a second battalion, 50 men. Same thing. Oi, Elijah, Ahaziah wants you. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. They're all killed. Uh, again, sorry, again, the king sent the captain and a third 50 with his 50. And the captain of 50 went up, came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, I, play, I pray you, let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Lo, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains, but 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said, Go down. He's saying, please. <laughs> what a difference it makes, you know. I mean, when the Lord is in judgment mood, as he was, you know, I mean, the first lot, Oi, Elijah the king wants you, zap, frazzled. 
The second 50 go down, oi, Elijah, get going. Whoosh, frazzled. You know, I mean, Elijah, remember Mount Carmel? He's well practiced in calling fire down now. So the third lot went and they kneel down and they say, please. <laughs> so Elijah goes, quite happily. And, uh, you know, and basically Elijah says to him, you know, uh, look, you know, you're going to die. It's as simple as that. You know, God's word has come to me. You were, you know, sort of like doing all this occult stuff and following the sin of your father. <coughs> you're going to die. And uh, so 17, so he died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah has spoken. And um, Jehoram, his brother, became king in his stead in the second year. Now then, we're going to pick up from 2 Kings chapter 2 next time, all right? And that will be, as it were, um, the last talk. But uh, what we're going to... Um, do now is we're just gonna see Elijah in the rest of the Bible oh yeah sorry I forgot let's let, let's see Jezebel's death shall we you know seeing as Elijah prophesied it just go to 2 Kings chapter 30 <coughs> sorry 2, 2 Kings chapter 9 and uh, just read from verse 30 um, when Jehu came to Jezebel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murder of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side, who? Two or three units looked at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and, and they trampled on her. Then he went in late and drank, and he said, See now the cursed woman and bury her, for she's the king's daughter. And uh, then... Um, verse 36, when they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his, servants, his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say this is Jezebel. And of course what happened is that the dogs go on, you know, because her body has burst open and there's blood everywhere, the dogs go in there and start feasting. You know, so, so God's judgment against Jezebel was carried out just a short while afterwards. Um, now, now, just just go go now to 2 Chronicles, uh, hang on, to just, um, just to see one other thing that Elijah did in the past, all right? Uh, two, 2 Chronicles, chapter 21. This is the, the last recorded thing in, in, in the Old Testament beyond what we're going to be looking at next week. Uh, 2 Chronicles 21 and verse 11. Um, now then, this is a... Uh, right. Moreover, this is about Jehoram, moreover he made high places in the hill countries of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into unfaithfulness and made Judah go astray. And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father or in the ways of Asa king of Judah. So this is now, he's is Elijah here is writing to Jehoshaphat's son, all right, in the other kingdom, okay, Judah. Uh, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into unfaithfulness, blah, blah, blah. Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, blah, blah, blah. And you yourself will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease. So that's the other thing Elijah did. He wrote here a prophetic letter, okay. Now then, once, once we've got to the end of next week's talk, we will then have covered all of Elijah's acts, etc., etc., in the Old Testament. But what we've got to move on to now is the fact that Elijah's ministry isn't finished. It's not finished. We're going to see next week how he ascends into heaven. But his ministry is not yet finished. Now, go to Malachi, because Elijah, doubtless, 
Terminator-like, will be back. Um, Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament. Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament. Chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6. The last two verses in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now that sums up what his sort of life was about in the Old Testament. But here in the Old Testament is a prophecy that Elijah had a future ministry to Israel of very much the same kind. Now, what is this great and terrible day of the Lord? Well, it's the coming of Messiah to establish his kingdom on earth. So, therefore, what these verses are actually talking about are the, is that prior to the second coming and the establishing of Jesus' thousand-year reign on earth, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, go to Matthew. Matthew, and in chapter 17, Matthew chapter 17, and let's read from verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain. And he was transfigured before him, them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, because Peter always has something to say, basically, Lord, it's well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, so you can understand the profundity of this, if this had been, uh, say, Bridlington on a sunny afternoon, Peter would have said, uh, does anyone want an ice cream? You know, I mean, it's, this is just Peter saying something because he didn't know how not to say something. It's daft, daft comment, you know. Um, he was still speaking when, lo, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I could possibly paraphrase that. Peter, shut up. <laughs> Let Jesus do the talking, you know. Um, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So he says, Don't tell anyone about this until after I've been raised. Then the disciples asked, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he says, Elijah does come, and he is to restore all things. <clears throat> but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now then, basically, um, I'll be back to this thing about Elijah and John the Baptist in just one moment. <clears throat> but the point is, here is Elijah and Moses, 2,000 years ago, physically alive. Um, now, let's, let's just, um, Elijah, as we're going to see next week, never died anyways. That's not a problem. Next week, we're going to see Elijah taken bodily into heaven. Elijah never died. There was only one other person in the Old Testament who that happened to, and that was Enoch. But Enoch was a Gentile, all right. So Enoch and um, Elijah went to heaven without dying, so they are there physically. Uh, now, also, we've got Moses here. Um, but the point is, Moses died. 
Um, in, in Deuteronomy 34, verse 1 to 6, read it, you know, sort of like when you get home, but, but Deuteronomy 34, verse 1 to 6, we simply have the fact that, Eli that Moses, he went out into the wilderness and he died. And uh, a search party was sent out to try and find the body, but they never found it. Uh, now, on the one hand, as far as they were, you know, concerned, that might not be strange because, uh, you know, kind of the wilderness was a big place. The fact that they didn't find a dead body perhaps wasn't that significant. However, if you turn to Jude, the letter of Jude, we get a bit of information that tells us that the reason they couldn't find Moses' body in the wilderness wasn't simply because they weren't looking in the right place, but because it wasn't there. Something happened afterwards. And we just want Jude and verse 9. Now, this is kind of like, it's a bit of information given in a different context to prove a teaching point. We're not interested in the point that Jude is making. We're just interested in the fact. But when the archangel Michael, contending with, contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, he did not presume to have pronounced a reviling judgment upon him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, the bit we want out of that is quite simply this. There was a fight between the principalities and powers and the angels over the body of Moses. Now, why was there a fight? Well, there was a fight because God, when Moses died, his body, when he died, would have been lying there. But you see, God did not want his body to just rot away as normal. God wanted his body, and because God wanted Moses' body, Satan didn't want him to have it, so there was a fight over it. And of course the reason is, because we've read about what happened at the Transfiguration, there's Moses and Elijah. The Lord wanted the body of Moses because after Moses died in the wilderness, he was raised from the dead and taken to heaven. So that from then on, Moses was alive in heaven, just like Enoch, and later on, just like Elijah. And at the Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are on the mountain with Jesus, alive, in their physical bodies, not glorified bodies, oh no, ordinary mortal bodies. And there they are. And of course the point is that Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. Moses and Elijah together kind of, rep you know, represented the entire body of Old Testament truth. All right. So uh, both of them, Elijah and Moses, were able to be at the Transfiguration because they're both alive. It's as simple as that. They are alive to this day in heaven with an ordinary mortal body, the same body that they had when they were alive down here. All right. Now we go to Matthew 11, and let's tackle the mystery bit. It was already hinted at um, in the Transfiguration thing that we read. <coughs> but Matthew 11... And chapter, uh, Matthew 11 and verse 7. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. And this is what Jesus said. What did you go out into the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind? Why then did you go out? To see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, those who wear soft raiment are in king's houses. What, why then did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall pre prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Because, of course, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament believers, you see, you know, like the friends of the bridegroom. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and men of violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we piped to you and you did not dance. We wailed, but you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now then there, in verse 13, uh, 14, uh, 14, Jesus said, if you are willing to accept it, he, that is John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Um, go over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And verse 14. Right, now this was um, the angel of the Lord appearing to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. Um, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This is talking about John the Baptist. For he will be great before the Lord. He shall drink no wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Spirit filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel to Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom, sorry, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, what you've got there, is um, we've seen from Jesus saying that John the Baptist was Elijah, if anyone was willing to hear it. And here we've seen at John's birth a prophecy, all right, concerning the fact that John was going to be filled um, with the spirit and power of Elijah and that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, that he would fulfill the promise in Malachi about the coming of Elijah. Now, this would all tend to suggest, at first glance, um, or it would raise this question, was John the Baptist, Elijah, kind of come back to earth as someone else? Because Jesus, after all, said John the Baptist was Elijah. Was John the Baptist literally Elijah? Well, the answer to that is no, absolutely not, of course he wasn't. But we've got to understand what exactly is going on here. The Old Testament in Malachi promised that prior to the kingdom of God being established, the great and terrible day of the Lord, which in the Old Testament they understood quite well that that was going to be Messiah establishing his rule on the earth from Jerusalem. The Old Testament promised that shortly before that kingdom was established, Elijah would appear to prepare God's people for it. Now then, when Jesus came to Israel, he came to his own people, but his own people received him not. If Israel had accepted Jesus rather than rejected him, 
then his messianic kingdom would have been established 2,000 years ago. But as it turned out, Israel rejected Jesus completely. Now God's judgment, I mean that did not catch God by surprise. God always knew that Israel was going to reject Jesus. So God's judgment on Israel for rejecting Jesus was this. Israel, who had been the means of salvation into the world so far since Abraham, Israel was going to be, as it were, cut out of the vine and was going to be replaced by the church, which would be largely a Gentile affair. And God would switch from Israel being his primary means of salvation to the Gentile church being the primary means of salvation. So the church replaced Israel in God's plan of salvation. And that was the judgment on Israel for rejecting Jesus. However, all God's promises in the Old Testament towards, you know, towards Israel are going to be literally fulfilled. And the Lord knows that at a future date, Israel will receive Jesus as their Messiah. So what we've got is that the church is temporarily filling in for Israel. Now the situation that that left Israel in at the time of Jesus was quite simply this. Had Israel as a nation accepted Jesus, the messianic kingdom would have been established on earth. The kingdom of God would have been established on earth. There and then. But because Israel as a nation rejected Jesus, it was postponed till after the church age. And it is even yet postponed because the church age is still going on. So the establishing of Messiah's kingdom on earth is still future. But where did that leave individual Jews who accepted Jesus as Messiah. They couldn't receive the literal messianic kingdom on earth. They couldn't receive the literal external from Israel rule of Messiah on the earth because that had been postponed now because Israel as a nation rejected him. So what about Jews who received Jesus as their Messiah individually? Well, simply works like this and obviously it's the same for us in some ways as Gentiles. Do you remember Jesus said the kingdom of God is not low here or low there, the kingdom of God is inside you. Now the point is the kingdom of God established literally on the earth is still future but when someone comes to Jesus because he lives inside of us the kingdom of God is established in our hearts and will remain in our hearts i.e. we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven until such time that we are part of the literal kingdom on earth in the future. So therefore, when a Jew received Jesus as their Messiah, they received the Messianic kingdom on earth. Not literally, that's going to be at a future date. But they received the rule of Jesus, the rule of the kingdom of God in their own hearts and lives. And what Jesus was saying about John the Baptist, because John the Baptist came to prepare Israel to receive Jesus, and whereas Israel didn't receive him, individuals did. The point was that John the Baptist would be as Elijah to those individuals who did receive Jesus. Can you see what I mean? The literal kingdom of God on earth is still future. And as we're going to see now, the literal coming of Elijah to see it in is still future. So John the Baptist was, as it were, Elijah to the Jews who received Jesus into their hearts 
individually. So the point is that Elijah will usher in the kingdom of God nationally and literally on earth. But because Israel rejected Jesus 2,000 years ago, the kingdom could only be received individually in people's hearts. And it was John the Baptist who ushered in that kingdom into people's hearts as surely as if it was Elijah ushering in the coming of the kingdom on earth. And that is why Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah, alright? Because remember, the ministry of Elijah is to bring Israel to faithfulness to God. Now, John the Baptist didn't bring the nation of Israel to God because they didn't listen. But John the Baptist was responsible for bringing many individual Jews to faithfulness in God. Therefore, he was as Elijah to any Jew 2,000 years ago who received Jesus as their saviour. So, what we have is the establishing of the literal messianic kingdom on earth and therefore the literal coming of Elijah shortly before it is still in the future, alright? And God knows that even though Israel rejected Jesus 2,000 years ago, he knows that future judgments would bring Israel to the point where they would receive Jesus as Saviour. And of course, I mean, Israel remained under God's judgment until they regained the land in 1948, all right? And we're in this kind of, like, you know, time of grace. But the next thing that's going to happen is that when the rapture comes and the church is removed from the earth, you then have the seven years of the Great Tribulation. And what happens then is that 144,000 Jews become Christians, and from their conversions, the world is re-evangelized. And once more, Israel is the means of salvation to the earth, because it's the 144,000 Jews, 12 from every tribe, who are being used to do that. At the same time, God's judgment is being poured out on the earth, on humankind, for having rejected Jesus, just as it was once poured out on Israel for having rejected him, all right? And you get the rise of the Antichrist, Satan's last bid at world power. And of course, he will concentrate much on what he's doing at destroying Israel because the second coming cannot happen until Israel prays for it. Do you remember Jesus? He wept over the holy city and he said of Israel and Jerusalem, he said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And halfway through the Great Tribulation, when the Antichrist turns against Israel, remember if Satan can destroy Israel, there can be no second coming. There can be no establishing of Jesus' reign on earth because Jesus will only come when Israel prays for him to. So Satan is trying to destroy Israel. Because if he can, if Israel isn't there to pray for the second coming, the second coming won't happen. Just as if Satan could have destroyed Israel in the Old Testament, Messiah couldn't have become a human being because there wouldn't have been a Jewish woman to give birth to him, you see. So Satan tries to destroy Israel, all right? And it is the intensity of his power against Israel that actually breaks the stubbornness of Israel's pride and causes them to realize that Jesus was their Messiah and to pray that he'll return. Now then, go to Revelation chapter 11. As you all well know that Revelation verse 5 onwards or really Revelation chapter 4 onwards, is uh, an account of world history from the rapture onwards. Now then, Revelations chapter 11, and uh, we'll read verse 1 through to verse 13. <coughs> 
Then I saw a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. Now that's three and a half years. And uh, that is going to, this is, you know, the second half of the Great Tribulation is when Israel is, is trampled and Jerusalem is surrounded and besieged by the Antichrist. <laughs> and I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. 1,260 days? Three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which stand before the Lord of the earth. Now we've got to be asking, who are these witnesses? If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, thus he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit will make war upon them and conquer them and kill them. That war from the bottom, you know, that beast, that is the Antichrist and his political and religious system. They make war on these two witnesses and they're killed. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is allegorically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, Sodom and Egypt. Sodom, one of the places where God's judgment really descended in the Old Testament, you know, the, the, the vileness of that city, all right, and Egypt, where God's people came out of captivity. And of course, the point is, Israel... Having not received Jesus as their Messiah, that is as bad to the Lord as the sin of Sodom, and also it leaves Israel in the same spiritual state that they might as well still be back in Egypt. See? Um, and the great city where their Lord was crucified. So it's allegorical names for Jerusalem. For three and a half, for three days and a half, men from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations gaze at their dead bodies. Or TV will help there, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, raised from the dead. And great fear fell, I've lost my place, yet on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up hither. And in the sight of their foes they went up to heaven in a cloud. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, these two witnesses, they're preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. All the... Jesus' teaching in the gospels to the believers in Jerusalem in the Great Tribulation was that when they saw the Antichrist surround Jerusalem, get out, flee. You know, the abomination stuff in the temple. Jesus said, get out. So we're halfway through the Great Tribulation. All the Christians in Jerusalem, what have they done? They've run. They fled. As Jesus told them to, get out, escape. Jerusalem is left without any Christians. Now, God never leaves his people without a witness to them. So, all the believers are gone, so these two guys appear. And they preach and evangelize in Jerusalem for three and a half years on the streets. Now then, who are they? Well, what are they able to do? People who come against them, uh, they can call fire down from heaven and they can shut up the sky so there's no rain. They were the specific miracle working abilities of Elijah. 
The second thing they can do between them is um, that they can turn waters into blood and smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Who did that? Moses, leading Israel out of Egypt. It's Moses and Israel. Uh, sorry, it's Moses and Elijah, and that's why God wanted them alive in heaven. Because for any Jew, Moses and Elijah summed up the Old Testament dispensation. The two of them are what Judaism is all about. Here, in the second half of the Great Tribulation, God is wanting Israel to accept that Jesus is their Messiah. And what happens? Israel, Jerusalem, gets Moses and Elijah in the streets doing what? Preaching the Gospel of Jesus. Can you imagine? The Jews are going down all over the place. They're getting converted left, right and centre. And for three and a half years, Moses and Elijah are here in Jerusalem doing it. Then the beast kills them. They're martyred. And their bodies lie in the street for three and a half days, three days, and suddenly they get up. God raises them from the dead. What have they been preaching for three and a half years? Jesus and his resurrection. And now they are killed and resurrected after on the third day, so a few thousand more Jews get converted. And because this is right at the end of, you know, kind of like the, the three and a half years, then you get, you know, they go back into heaven. And this is how we know that Elijah and Moses are in heaven in their ordinary mortal form. Because they get killed. Glorified bodies can't be killed. So when they're raised from the dead here on the third day, then they get their glorified bodies, all right. But the point is, then you get the earthquake and that, so they go up into heaven immediately before the second coming. Immediately before the second coming. So their testimony has brought thousands in Israel to the Lord, and it is then through their work between them that Israel as a nation repents. There's national kind of sackcloth, etc., and a day of prayer calling on Messiah, the Lord Jesus, to come. And in answer to their prayer, Jesus comes and then establishes his kingdom on earth, the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Therefore, we see Malachi completely fulfilled. And we see, at last, what Elijah didn't get in his ministry in the Old Testament, and he didn't, Israel really being faithful to the Lord, what he didn't get then first time round, he gets second time round. And his ministry brings Israel as a nation to Jesus, and the kingdom of God, with Jesus ruling on the earth, is established for a thousand years. It's Elijah's second bite of the cherry, and it worked. Think of Moses, he was the other one. It's his second bite of the cherry as well. Do you remember? Because of his sin, God said, you can't go into the promised land, mate, you've got to die in the wilderness. Joshua's going to take over, you weren't faithful. So, Eli so Moses didn't get what he wanted to see on his first bite of the cherry, did he? Now, he gets a second bite of the cherry as well. God's faithfulness to them, God's grace to them. So here, halfway through the Great Tribulation, we see Elijah hand in hand with Moses, all right, coming down and preaching in Jerusalem for three and a half years. And obviously many people would have got converted. They're martyred right at the end of the three and a half years. For three days, they're dead, lying in the streets, then they're raised from the dead, they're taken back into heaven, and as a result of that, Israel as a nation turns to the Lord, returns to their Lord, realises that they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, repents of that, prays for him to return, and Jesus returns, judges the earth, destroys the unbelievers, and establishes his kingdom for a thousand years with him reigning from Jerusalem. The kingdom of God literally established. The great and terrible day of the Lord. And who was there to usher it in? 
Elijah with Moses' help. And of course they turn the hearts of the fathers to the children because obviously all these Jewish families becoming Christians and then repopulating the earth at the beginning of the thousand year reign of Jesus. So the ministry of Elijah and indeed of Moses as well will be fulfilled in the future. And uh, we will have the final talk on Elijah next time.